The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to thank members of our military who are tuning in from remote locations today. Thank you for being with us again. In just a moment, former Senate Majority Leader, who was voted the most respected member of the Senate for six years running, Mr. George Mitchell, will be joining us. And we're going to find out whether brokering peace in Ireland and between the Israelis and Palestinians is any more challenging than getting both sides of the aisle to work together here at home. But before Mr. Mitchell joins us, as is my custom each week, let me take a moment to tell you a little about his background. George Mitchell was orphaned at a young age and had the good fortune to be adopted by a loving working-class Lebanese family. In his early years, Mitchell was an altar boy and worked as a janitor when he was in high school. He received his undergraduate degree from Bowdoin College in 1954 and then served in the United States Army until 56. Then five years later, Mitchell received his law degree from Georgetown University. His first stop was as trial attorney for the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice, But before he knew it, he was tapped as executive assistant to Senator Edmund Muskie. By 1977, Mitchell was on a fast track. He was appointed U.S. Attorney for Maine by President Carter and later appointed to the U.S. District Court in Maine. He worked as a federal judge on up to May of 1980 when the governor asked him to fill Muskie's seat, which was vacated when Muskie was appointed Secretary of State. In 1982, Mitchell was elected to his first full term, and he was re-elected with an 81% majority in 1988. Mitchell proved to be an even-handed, skilled senator, and he rose to become our nation's Senate Majority Leader from 1989 to 95. He is credited with reauthorizing the Clean Air Act, passing the Americans with Disabilities Act, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and the formation of the World Trade Organization. In 1995, Mitchell served as special envoy envoy for Northern Ireland under President Clinton, for which he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Liberty Medal. And more recently, in 2009, he was appointed by President Obama to act as special envoy to the Israeli-Arab peace process. It seems that wherever there is a hot spot, we send Mr. Mitchell in. And I want to also be sure that I mention that Mr. Mitchell has served on the board of directors of Disney, Xerox, Federal Express, and Unilever. And he is also a member of the Bipartisan Policy Center, along with colleagues Howard Baker, Bob Dole, and Tom Daschle. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a devoted public servant and humanitarian, Mr. George Mitchell. Thank you for joining us today, Senator. Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be with you. I thought maybe we could open today's program with issues on the home front, and then we'll move to challenges that we face abroad. So uh, I receive emails and texts every day from listeners who feel that the greatest danger our country faces today is polarization. And if it's not the Affordable Health Care Act website, then it's it's the Bridgegate scandal. So... How can an organization like the Bipartisan Policy Center help both parties get focused on finding that common ground instead of this incessant bickering that we're witnessing? Well, the center was founded by four former Senate Majority Leaders, two Republicans and two Democrats. Bob Dole and Howard Baker were Republican leaders of the Senate. Tom Daschle and I were Democratic leaders of the Senate. And we are as dismayed as all other Americans at the, what you describe as the polarization and the seeming inability to compromise, although there's been a slight uptick in the past week. We just saw the Congress passing uh, 
moving toward passage of a major budget uh, in the past few days. So we created this bipartisan policy center to see if we could not, ourselves and with experts, both Republican and Democrat and non-aligned, to tackle some of the serious problems in the country, to make recommendations that are bipartisan in nature, and hopefully serve as a template for what can be done in Congress. Uh, For example, just a couple of months ago, we released the results of a year-long study uh, which uh, dealt with the issue of housing in our country, uh, the crisis in housing that exists and is going to become uh, more serious in coming years, and the failure of the Congress to address some of the recent issues. Our report's been well-received. We had uh, half of it was Democrat, half Republican. We had people from all parts of the industry, advocates for various points of view, and over the course of a year, we were able to come up with a set of recommendations that all of us agree make some sense in helping to move the country forward. We also agree that if each of us had written a report individually, it might not be this one. There's not unanimity on every point, but there is unanimity on the need for bipartisan approaches, meaning you have to respect, listen to, and try to accommodate the other point of view. That's what led us to create the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we've had a number of important reports on major issues, and hopefully uh, it'll have some beneficial effect. I I do want to say that it's awful tough on members of Congress now. Uh, uh, They get a lot of pressure on both sides. There is a polarization of the country. It's not just of Congress. Congress is reflective of the country itself for a variety of reasons that would uh, take very long to get into in detail, uh, but we have to try to address it. And one way is to find those areas of common ground, see what we can do on the major issues confronting the country, and try somehow to bring down the level of inflammatory language and insult and uh, negative uh, advertising that has cre- helped to create the circumstance that exists today. Well, I agree with you. The country, in my view, has never been more more polarized. Uh, I'm pushing 60 years old, and I don't think I've ever seen us quite in this condition before. Uh, but there's a question of, well, did the country become polarized, and therefore our leaders are simply reflecting that? Or do our leaders have an obligation to model compromise, to model better behavior than the citizens themselves are exhibiting at this time? Well, to be realistic, politics has always been tough in our country. Campaigns have always been rugged. Uh, There has been strong disagreement. I read an article recently describing the election of 1800 when John Adams was the incumbent president, Thomas Jefferson was the challenger. Mm -hmm. Some of the things they said about each other then (laughs) would be considered sensational today and very dramatic. The difference, of course, is that in those days, you didn't have television, you didn't have radio, you didn't have uh, the power impact and blanket coverage that comes with electronic communication. The insults appeared in print. Uh, They were read by only a relatively small number of people, usually distant in both time and geography from where it was said, and it just didn't have the coverage and the emotional impact that comes now, particularly with the advent of negative advertising on television, which really does drive and inflame passions throughout our country. If two candidates spend millions of dollars telling the people, one says the other's a crook and the other says the other one's a bum, that they're bums and crooks, it's not easy, it's not difficult to understand why the people believe what they hear, if that's all they hear. So uh, I think it's always been there. It's always been difficult, but it's much more difficult now because of modern technology and also because the incredible amounts of money that go into political campaigns now needed primarily for to finance television advertising. So there are a lot of reasons for the polarization. I think it's an interactive result, frankly, and I think the political leaders, difficult as it may be, 
have to try to get some restraint, get some leadership, and find common ground. I agree with you. I think that that when they model that kind of tolerance and compromise, then they show people how to get over those uh, that polarization uh, and how to behave, I think, it, uh, correctly in their own lives. Now, we have to take a short commercial break. When we come back, uh, we're going to connect the dots between economic prosperity and the desire for peace. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way. I was facing foreclosure. I was desperate for help. I paid them $1,500 and never got the help they promised. Don't let the fear of losing your home make you the victim of a loan modification scam. Remember these facts to protect yourself. It's illegal for most companies to charge fees in advance, no matter how small. No company can guarantee they can modify your loan or stop a foreclosure. And never send your mortgage payment to anyone but your lender. The easiest way to avoid a scam? Don't pay for a loan modification. Get free help from a HUD-approved counseling agency now. To learn more, report a scam, or find out if you've been a victim, call 1-888-995-HOPE or visit LoanScamAlert.org. That's 1-888-995-4673 and LoanScamAlert.org. Know the signs. Get the facts. This is the story of Daniel, who was born two months early. He weighed one pound, seven ounces. His lungs weren't ready. His heart wasn't ready. His brain wasn't ready. At the hospital, the nurses said Daniel was a fighter, and they would do all they could to help him. The doctor said even with the best care, Daniel may never walk. He may never see. He may never learn. Daniel's parents spent night after night at the hospital, watching his every breath, holding his tiny hands, and looking for signs that he was growing stronger. At home, his parents looked around Daniel's empty nursery, at the quiet toys and the still rocker, and they hoped that one day they could sit in that rocking chair and tell this story to their very healthy son. Daniel's is just one of the more than 500,000 stories of babies born prematurely last year, but there's hope for a happy ending. The March of Dimes is funding the research and programs to stop premature birth. You can help bring more babies home healthy. Learn how at marchofdimes.com. Working together for stronger, healthier babies. Got a comment or a question? Visit Rebecca Costa's comments page at RebeccaCosta.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Senate Majority Leader and Peacemaker, Mr. George Mitchell. So switching gears to the challenges we face abroad... 
uh, last fall you uh, had a story about going to Northern Ireland to facilitate peace and seeing a map which revealed that the areas of highest unemployment were also the most violent. And you went on to say that the lack of opportunity is the fuel for despair. Now, now I know it's impossible to tell whether the violence created the unemployment or vice versa, but you made the point that investment organizations can play a big role in facilitating peace by investing in high-tech businesses which employ both Israelis and Palestinians. So can you talk about the role business investment has to play in bringing stability to the Middle East? I think it's absolutely essential anywhere, not just the Middle East, not just Northern Ireland, here in our own country and in neighboring countries to us. People everywhere need hope, opportunity. They need the chance to try to improve their lives and, most importantly, to get their children off to a good start in life. That means a good job. It means economic growth. It really means opportunity, which is what the United States essentially stands for, freedom and opportunity. It's interactive. One feeds the other in kind of a negative spiral as you go downward in terms of economic opportunity. The prospect of violence rises, and when that occurs, the economic opportunities decline even further. Uh, Almost all of the conflicts in which I've been involved uh, primarily were the Balkans, uh, Northern Ireland, and the Middle East had religious factors, ethnic factors, factors of national identity. They were not uniquely economic, but underlying all of them was an economic factor. And that's why I have always stressed not just business organizations, Rebecca, individuals. People would say to me, what can I do to be a peacemaker? And I said to them, trade, do business, visit, interact, help people everywhere get jobs and economic opportunity, and you'll be doing as much for peace as anyone like me or an envoy or a president or a secretary of state or anybody else. Everybody can contribute in their own way. Now, I believe you made the point that uh, Arab countries are going to have to produce 100 million new jobs in the next decade, and it's going to take a miracle like the one we've seen in Israel to accomplish this. Is that right? Oh, it's a daunting challenge. Uh, There's not enough discussion in this country about what's going to happen in the next decade. We have so many issues confronting us now, it's difficult for leaders to focus on anything beyond tomorrow and next week. But step back with me a little bit and listen to some statistics which come from recent population projections made by the United Nations. First, it must be said and understood that population projections are notoriously uh, unreliable because public policies can change population trends. By far the most important factor in all of history in terms of population is the emancipation and the empowerment of women. When and where that occurs, population growth tends to stabilize. Where it doesn't occur, population tends to grow rapidly. Now let me cite a few figures. From the time Jesus Christ was born until 1800, it took that long, 1,800 years for the world's population to reach 1 billion. Mm The most recent billion, the seventh, was added in 13 years. Think about that. 1,800 years for the first billion, 13 years for the seventh billion. Now, the rate has slowed somewhat, but the most recent projections are that by the middle of the century, 2050 or 60, uh, beyond my lifetime, but not beyond that of my children's lifetime, there will be between 9.5 and 10 billion people on Earth. Most of that growth will occur in undeveloped or less developed countries where the opportunities are already low, where poverty is already high, and where the stress on natural resources and others is the greatest. And so the, the potential for continued upheaval, for increased upheaval growth, One other context, of the 7 billion people now on earth, one out of three is Muslim. 
when the population reaches 10 billion, it'll be one out of three. I'm sorry, it's one out of five now, be one out of three then. That'll be three and a half billion Muslims in the world just at a time when the conflict between Sunni and Shia Muslims, which has existed from the beginning, that that conflict began in the competition for succession to the Prophet Muhammad, but it has accelerated dramatically in recent years. And because of technology, communication, weapons development, and so forth, it's now uh, more violent than ever. That will continue, and there'll be turbulence in the region for a long time to come. This is an enormous challenge that requires a, re a, a tremendous amount of effort, planning, and coming up with ways to deal with it other than through simply the use of military force. Well, so I'm in violent agree with you, Senator. Um, I, I really am in violent agreement with you. Uh, uh, using Egypt as just an example, during Mubarak's reign, the population soared from 30 million to 80 million. So even if you put his leadership aside, uh, he would have had to have created 50 million jobs, three times the schools, roads, hospitals, just to keep the living standard where it was. And uh, so, so given that reality, it doesn't seem like ground conditions for the average Egyptian or for really any Arab Spring country can change unless they get control over these exploding numbers. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be on the ta on the table right now. So, am I looking at this the wrong way? Are we going to see e increased violence? Uh, I think that's likely, although. The reality is that you can make arguments about violence increasing or decreasing. Uh, uh, the fact is, in the 20th century, at a time of major land wars, when you had nations, large nations, individually in combination, fighting against each other, the rate of death was very much higher than it is now. Consider that in the First World War, an estimated 15 million people died. Yeah. In the Second World War, more than 60 million, and the populations of the countries were far smaller than they are today. Now, we have more publicity now. Uh, the death of five, six, eight people gets on the front page, whereas back in those days, people were dying by the many thousands each day. So you have to keep it in perspective. It is difficult. It is turbulent, hard to deal with, but it is better than what has happened in much of the recent past, and we have to keep that going. We have by far the best, most successful, and most effective military force in all of human history, by far. So much so that it is unlikely that any nation or combination of nations will challenge us in a major international war. We are going to see, though, increasing difficulties of the type of regional upheavals that we have, and they take a long time, and history teaches us two very important lessons. The first is, it takes a long time to sort this out. In England, it took 200 years. In France, 50 years. And it's going to happen in the Arab countries. And the second one is, and I'll just conclude this segment with this, history tells us that the removal of a totalitarian or despotic regime by force does not guarantee that the successor regime will be any better. And on Russia's that note, Senator, we've got to go to a hard break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Are you looking for ideas to create a more balanced meal plan? As one of the world's largest providers of fresh fruits and vegetables, Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods. From a wide variety of salad blends and all-natural salad kits to fresh-cut vegetables and a rainbow of your favorite fresh fruit, Dole delivers good nutrition naturally. But Dole goes beyond just offering healthy fruits and vegetables. Dole has their own nutrition institute that gives you the knowledge and tools you need to make smart choices about your nutrition and health. Visit www.dole.com for more information about the Dole Nutrition Institute. Be sure to sign up for their e-newsletter to receive delicious recipes, tips, and articles to help you make your meals the best they can be. Visit www.dole.com for more. Okay, gang, so chances are there'll never be an emergency ever, ever again. Mm -hmm. But just in case, let's talk about a plan. Okay. So who's going to do what? Anyone? Uh... 
Yeah, okay, perfect. We'll figure it out as we go. So, who is going to grab the go bag? What's a go bag? It is a bag we do not have that is filled with things we really, really need in an emergency. Guess we won't have to worry about it then. Ah, good point. So, uh, we all know who to call if something happens then, right? I'd have to call Jill, Devin, Melissa, Karen, and... Bruce. And I will try to call all of you, but Greg doesn't have a cell phone. Dad's phone will have a dead battery. No doubt. And Julie will be on the phone with Jill, Devin, Melissa, Karen, and Bruce. Well, this is great. <laughs> I am so glad that we don't have a plan. I know. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. A college education is one of the best tools for building a better life. But for the thousands of American Indians living on reservations, that path can be difficult to navigate. More American Indians live in poverty than any other racial or ethnic group. Often forced to choose between buying food and paying tuition, less than 5% of American Indians can afford to go to college without help. Since 1989, the American Indian College Fund has helped thousands of young men and women begin a path out of poverty as students at tribal colleges. In a tribe, educating one student can empower an entire community to create jobs, address health problems, and preserve their culture. As more American Indians see a college education as a way out of poverty, full-time college enrollment continues to rise, along with a continued need for support. Help a student, help a tribe. To learn more, please visit tribalcollege.org. A public service message from the American Indian College Fund. It's pouring rain. It's real dark outside. Your heart starts beating really, really fast. You've never done anything so hard in your life. This is boot camp. This is the real thing now. It's such extreme pain, you don't understand how you can finish. I began to feel that there was no way I was ever going to have my title, U.S. Marine. It takes special inner strength, courage, and desire to do this. I was just thinking, I'm so close. I'm so close. And when I, I finished, I was like, I'm done. I did it. The moment I will never forget is when this drill instructor that I admire so much comes up to me straight in front of me, put her arm on my shoulder and said, good morning, Marine. PFC Summer Volkman became a Marine. Can you? Visit marines.com or call 1-800-MARINES. The few, the proud, the Marines. Take a moment to see Rebecca's video pick of the week. Go to YouTube and subscribe to the Rebecca Costa YouTube channel. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is George Mitchell. And you were making the point that uh, the removal of a totalitarian government is just a beginning, but by no means an end. And I apologize, Senator, that I had to take a hard break, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish that thought. No, I understand that. Uh, my point was that uh, removal of Totalitarian regimes by force doesn't guarantee a good result. Russia is the best example. They suffered under the Tsars for many years, but very few people would argue that the brutal and murderous regime of Joseph Stalin was an improvement. So it takes a long time for societies to work out their problems and to establish democratic institutions that have staying power. We have to be patient. We have to be supportive. We have to get out of the notion that every problem in the world is an American problem, that the United States has to solve every problem in the world. We can't do it. We can help, and we can best lead by example, by dealing with our own problems in a way that is effective, by being prepared to use military force when necessary and appropriate, but not as a first resort in dealing with problems in other countries. But to continue that thought, uh, and I couldn't agree with you more, that every problem is not a United States problem, but every problem is not a political problem either. That's for sure. In fact, most problems aren't political problems. They deal with other aspects of life which find their way into the political process because, of course, most societies, to be successful, need effective governance. Now, we believe that through trial and error, and really, from the American example, uh, the best system of government, 
is a democratic government in which the only legitimate source of authority for government is the consent freely given of the people. But maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. Even if you institute democracies, as in Egypt or other Middle Eastern countries, if they can't create jobs for hundreds of millions of people coming, how can the democracy uh, expect to stabilize? Well, you need both, and they are both interdependent. Uh, Keep in mind that we use the word democracy. And I think one of the mistakes that we Americans made in the past couple of decades is conveying the impression that if you have an election, you're a democracy. An election is, of course, an indispensable element in a democracy, but it is not the whole thing, and you don't become a democracy just by having one election. (laughs) Oh, wouldn't that be easy? (laughs) Yeah. The really important part and the hard part is what comes with democracy first the rule of the majority, but second, the protection of the rights of minorities to make certain that governments are inclusive and that the primacy of individual liberty is maintained so that some rights are not subject to majority rule. That's very, very hard for people to grasp and to live up to in societies which don't have that history. Well, I'm glad you you brought that up. We struggled with that in our own country. Late last year, we were attempting to change the filibuster laws. We, 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 look. And and that that is a dangerous uh, uh, change of Senate rules. We, we, look, we struggle with that for the 230 years of our existence. And we're still struggling with it. And it's a real problem in other societies. You've mentioned Egypt two or three times. Mm -hmm. Now, what you see there, of course, is that uh, when Mubarak left, there was an election. And Morsi and the Islamic Brotherhood won the election. Nobody disputes that it was a rigged election. It reflected the will of the people at the time. Yes. But then they came in and acted in the same way that the predecessors had. It it was that we won, and so it's now us. And they not only made no effort to be inclusive, they did just the opposite. Now, as a result, they've been toppled, and one of the concerns that people have is the, the army in power now is, in effect, adopting the same line. We won, and we're going to be in control, and... We're not going to share power in any inclusive sense, in any meaningful way, with the opposition. What they have to learn is that the hard part of democracy is you have to balance between the rights of the and the authority of the majority to rule, while at the same time protecting the rights of the minority and, most importantly, of the individual citizen. That's a very easy thing to say and an extraordinarily hard thing to do, and that's the problem, the challenge that is being faced now, right now throughout the Muslim world, but throughout history in every part of the world. Well, uh, as you point out, we've struggled with that for our entire nation's history as well, and even as late as last year, uh, we were struggling with what the minority on the Senate floor had a right to do. So uh, we continue to have that discussion. But that's the beauty of a democracy is that you're constantly having the dialogue. You know, the dialogue to me is very important. And sometimes you get it more right and sometimes a little less right. But uh, but uh, respecting the right of law uh, is something uh, that is very difficult for, I think, certain cultures to come to terms with. Well, you're right about that, and I I think one of the principal reasons for the success of the United States as a society and an economy has been our willingness to have that kind of debate, to confront our own errors and mistakes, and to deal with them. We have made some horrible anti-democratic mistakes in our nation's history. Uh, and and we all can go back and pick out the ones that most suit our purposes. But what we have seen is that over time, we have recognized them, and the pendulum has swung away from the extremes back to the center, and we've made the changes necessary to deal with them. And that is essential not only for individual growth, but for the growth of any society. 
I I agree with you. I think that we're in for a bumpy road in the Middle East unless they can get their economies operating in a successful way because I think at the heart of it, back to what you were saying, unless they can create employment and viability for future generations, uh, there will be continued turmoil uh, and uh, and lack of stability. Not just the Middle East is going to be a problem in Africa. Africa is going to experience explosive uh, population growth. Uh, the United States will experience continued very substantial growth, although I think it's manageable here because we are now uh, about, I think, to see the American economy take off in a new period of growth that I think is going to go a long way toward solving some of the issues that have led to the polarization that we have. What you find throughout our history and that of other societies is that when times are difficult, when the economy turns down, when there's high level of unemployment or underemployment, people then are more susceptible to the kind of extremes that tend to exist in all places and all times. When times are good, uh, they're much more positive. And I think we're about to enter a period in which times are going to be very good. The the dramatic increase in production of oil and natural gas in our society is going to spark a an economic revival that will, I think, have a renewal for the American economy and I think will improve our circumstances a great deal in the coming years. The immediate challenge is the stubbornly high rate of unemployment and underemployment that persists despite our recovery from the recession. And I think it's important for us to bear in mind that as we experience that recovery, we have an opportunity to make investments in countries in a smart way that will forward the agenda of peace. That's right. And we, we see that all, all around the world, including in our own hemisphere, including in our relationship with Mexico, our neighbor to the south and in other countries in Latin America and in the Pacific. Uh, I, I, I do think that the greatest challenge that our leaders are going to have in the coming decades is to make the difficult decision of when to respond to requests for American intervention elsewhere and when not to. It's a very difficult argument, it's a very difficult issue, hard to decide where and when in one place you can make arguments pro and con, but we have to resist the temptation, I'm repeating myself now what I said earlier, that we can solve every problem in the world. I agree with you. Now we have to take our last scheduled break, but when we come back we'll continue with George Mitchell. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. When it comes to Pinot Noirs, there are very few winemakers more knowledgeable than Scott Caraccioli. So tell us, Scott, what makes a good Pinot Noir? I think a lot of it starts in the vineyard with having an area that can grow the Pinot Noir grape to the most optimal maturation point in the grape's lifespan. And here on the Central Coast, in the Santa Lucia Highlands specifically, we have the ability with the cool climate to have long growing days, but not getting too hot with the coastal fog coming in to cool it down. And it really leads to a perfectly deep, rich, complex Pinot Noir flavor profile when starting to build your Pinot Noir. And from there, a lot of it is just adding the small little nuances of the winemaking that really express the grape in the most positive light. Absolutely. I'll tell you, once you have a Caraccioli Cellars Pinot Noir, you just want more. (laughs) (laughs) Are you living paycheck to paycheck? Are your credit cards maxed out? 
not paying some bills so you can take care of others? Or are you behind on the rent or utility bills? There is no better time than now to get your finances in order. The National Foundation for Credit Counseling, a nonprofit organization, offers a number of steps you can take to get yourself on the way to living debt-free. Track your spending for one month and record all your expenses, what kind and how much you spent. Use that to figure out where you can trim the fat. Look for low-cost alternatives to reduce expenses. Pack your lunch instead of buying it. Go to the library instead of the bookstore. When your credit card bills arrive, pay more and pay extra, exceeding the minimum payment. For more tips on how to recover from debt or get help in developing a budget, contact the NFCC to reach a certified counselor at 1-800-388-2227 or visit debtadvice.org. That's 1-800-388-2227 or visit debtadvice.org. A public service message from the NFCC. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Join Rebecca Costa right now on Facebook. Search facebook.com forward slash Rebecca Costa. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is George Mitchell. Continuing with the Middle East, uh, we've recently brokered a deal with Iran to uh, limit their nuclear program, and this seems to vindicate using diplomacy and sanctions rather than a military approach. Uh, something you were speaking about earlier. Uh, Without taking anything away from this uh, important achievement, Iran has been buying arms from North Korea since the 1980s. And since North Korea's program has been ahead of Iran's internal development, isn't there danger that this is just a decision on the part of Iran to buy from North Korea instead of investing in their own program? Well, that's one of many dangers involved. Uh, First, I don't think that uh, diplomacy and uh, military are mutually exclusive. In fact, they're mutually reinforcing. The diplomacy will only work if there is a credible threat of military action. And the military action will only be effective if there has been a clear and determined diplomatic effort that preceded it. Uh, I think we have to go into this with our eyes wide open based upon the fact that although the ruling Ayatollah and the president of Iran have both said that their country does not want a nuclear weapon, the policies and actions of their government until now have been contrary to their assertion. And they've not been completely accurate or truthful in their responses to the international agency. However, they are a member of the international non-proliferation regime. They have permitted inspections, and under this recent six months agreement, they have agreed to daily inspections, the most intrusive and vigorous inspection regime in any country's history. So I think it makes sense to take this action, to maintain the sanctions, and to try hard to reach a permanent agreement, but make it clear that if there is not a satisfactory permanent agreement, the threat of military force remains and will be employed if it is necessary. Here's what I'm not understanding. Why would any country invest in a nuclear weapons program of their own when they can just buy one from North Korea? North Korea does sales demonstrations every six months. Because, uh, first off, uh, all of these regimes know that governments can change. And if you put all your uh, eggs into the basket of getting assistance from a country, that gives them the leverage to shut the pipeline off anytime they want. Mm. The United States would never agree 
that our nuclear program will be purchased from someone else, leaving us not dependent on doing that. We take a policy with respect to military equipment, for example. We People say, well, you can buy ships cheaper in uh, Italy and uh, Germany and France and South Korea, and maybe we could. But would any American government or president agree that we're going to give up making nuclear submarines or our aircraft carriers on our own because we might get them cheap elsewhere. They'll never, they want to do it on their own. Listen, Rebecca, there are nine countries with nuclear weapons. Iran's trying to make it 10. In each of the nine, including the United States, the public believes that their country ought to have nuclear weapons. It's just others that shouldn't have them. That's right. Why would we expect the people of Iran to be different from everybody else in the world? Now, what we have to make clear to them is that the cost to them of developing a nuclear weapon will be so great, and the benefits that they will get from not doing so will be so substantial. And we have done that through economic sanctions. They have have. worked. I mean, it's worked. There's no question that that has worked, but it is not working in North Korea. We have massive starvation in North Korea, and it is the people of North Korea who are suffering because of their government's insistence on pursuing nuclear weapons. That, that, is, that is absolutely correct, and it is a fact that sanctions work in some cases, and they do not in others. But you made the point that, you know, it's the combination of sanctions backed up by the military capability. That's right. But North Korea serves as another example for Iran and that people treat North Korea because they do have nuclear weapons in a way that they don't treat Iran. And that really gives Iran an incentive to try to join the nuclear well, How club. do we change that? What do we do in the case of North Korea so that we don't treat them differently and hold them out as a way to uh, force us to a negotiating table? Uh, I think that we have to continue to maintain sanctions and at the same time continue to engage in dialogue and discussion and to hope and expect that over time uh, they will come to realize that the cost to them for their nuclear ambitions is not justified by the benefits that they're getting. Very difficult to do and you can say at any moment that it hasn't worked and it surely hasn't. But remember, when you're trying to bring about a peaceful change, until you get it, you failed. But that doesn't mean you stop. When I went to Northern Ireland, I was told it's impossible. There have been many previous efforts. They have all failed. And it took me five years. I, I, got, I received the word no a thousand times. If I'd taken, uh, taken the attitude that, well, they haven't done it, they said no, what's the point? We never would have gotten an agreement. Well, that's the thing with a peace negotiation. You never know if you're at the beginning, middle, or the end. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Well, sometimes you don't even think you're getting off the floor. (laughs) There you go. My question is, uh, um, can we send you over to North Korea? You you have a good track record. You're working there with, let's send you and Dole and Dashiell and Howard Baker. Why don't you guys put a committee together and go on over there? Yeah, I don't don't think it would be us that will solve it. I think uh, it's going to take others. Can I I tell you one story about me and Bob Dole before our time runs out? Absolutely, I'd love that. To the first uh, question that you began. After I was elected majority leader of the Senate, by the Democratic members of the Senate. One of the first persons I called was Bob Dole. He was then the Republican leader, and I said, I'd like to come see you. I felt it was important to establish a good relationship with him because I knew I'd be working with him for years ahead. Yes, I'd only been there seven years. He'd been there 20. He was nationally known. I was hardly known. And, and he's so a said, tough guy. <laughs> he's a tough guy, but he's a terrific guy. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I want to have a good relationship with you. I said, I'm here to tell you how I will behave towards you and to ask you to behave toward me in the same way. And then I told him what really are simple, basic, common forms of decency. I said, I'll never surprise you. I won't criticize you. I won't attack you. I'll always be available to you. I said, we're going to disagree a lot, but let's do so in a way that's not personal and that enables us to continue to work together. And I told him, I'll always keep my word to you. His response was, he was 
enthusiastic. He was generous. We shook hands. And for six years, we never had a harsh word passed between us. We disagreed on many issues. We had many very difficult legislative battles. We represented different parties. We negotiated hundreds of times on bills and procedures. And in every instance, I kept my word to him. He kept his word to me. And you continue to work together now. We do. We do. It is a relationship that has stood the test of time. We're very good friends. He called me just a couple of days ago to wish me a happy new year. We had a very nice chat. Uh, that is wonderful. Well, that we are out of time, and I want to thank you for that story because that's the kind of role modeling I like to see in our leaders. I've been asked many, many times, what do you look for in a good leader? And I tell people over and over again, I look for a leader to model behavior that I admire. And uh, and, and that is a, a great story to end the program with. Uh, but before we say goodbye and we let you go, I, I do want to take this opportunity to thank you for your service to our nation. Thank you, Mr. Mitchell. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for your kind words and for having me on your show. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're all over the internet and let me know what you thought about our conversation with Mr. Mitchell today. And if you missed the full interview with Mr. Mitchell or any of our other guests, remember that you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And I also want to remind you that there are very few remaining copies of the first edition hardcover of The Watchman's Rattle, so Take a moment and go to our website and reserve yours. Uh, They're already printing the second edition hardcover. And as many of you know, the paperback is in its eighth printing. All of the proceeds of the sale of the book go to expanding nonpartisan broadcasting throughout the United States. So if you're sick and tired of that divisive ranting raving that you hear every day, you have to do more than just complain about it. Join us in bringing intelligent, content-rich programming back to mainstream media. Programming that's informative and doesn't horribleize or sugarcoat the issues that we face. So go to RebeccaCosta.com, that's my name, .com, and pick up the only book that lays out the signs to look for prior to collapse. My guest next week is the star of The Sopranos, The Matrix, and one of my favorite films, Memento, Mr. Joe Pantoliano. He'll be here to talk about mental illness and that vast gray land in between. So don't miss Joe Pantoliano next week right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.